0: This episode of Geeks Guide to the Galaxy is made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoy the show and want it to continue, please support us on Patreon over at patreon.com slash geeks, or via PayPal over at geeksguideshow.com slash crowdfunding. And I want to give a special thank you to Rory Carroll, who just increased his pledge amount. So big thanks again to everyone who's contributed. We really appreciate it. All right, so now let's get to our show. Wired.com
1: presents The Geek's Guide to the
0: Galaxy. And here is your host, David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 501 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Our guest today is Mark Burrows. His articles have appeared in The Guardian, Observer, Drowned in Sounds, and The Quietus, and he's performed several stand-up comedy shows at the Edinburgh Fringe Festival. He also edited the humor book, I Think I Can See Where You're Going Wrong, and he plays bass in the cult punk band, The Men Who Will Not Be Blamed For Nothing. And we'll be speaking with him today about his book, The Magic of Terry Pratchett, the first full-length biography of legendary fantasy author Terry Pratchett, creator of the Discworld series. And now here's our interview with Mark Burroughs. All right, so we're here with Mark Burroughs. Welcome to the show. Hi, nice to be here. Okay, so tell us about The Magic of Terry Pratchett. How'd it come about?
1: Sure. So, um, I'm a huge Pratchett nerd. Uh, I have been for years. I, I came across Terry Pratchett's work in 1992 when a bloke down the pub lent my mum, the color of magic. And she went, this is Mark's kind of thing. I was 11 years old and it had swearing in it and that's automatically funny. And there's a pun in the first sentence of the first book. And that's completely funny straight away. I love comedy. I love fantasy. So I was completely hooked. And, uh, And then uh, a publisher, Pen and Sword, approached me, um, to pitch for a, to pitch for a biography of J.R.R. Tolkien that they wanted to do. And, uh, I thought, well, I, I I could, I want to write a book and I, I like Tolkien, so I'll give it a go. But I was like, do we need another Tolkien biography? And also, don't you have to basically have a PhD in <laughs> Tolkien to write a Tolkien book? Uh, so I, I, so I, I sent them a sample and I put a together and I thought, well, it'll be, it'll be interesting enough to do it, but I don't think this is a subject I can really do, do anything new with, but I want to write a book. And they came back to me with, well, we've got this Tolkien expert to write the Tolkien book. I thought, <laughs> fair, uh, but is there anything else you'd like to do? And so I just started thinking about who I could write a biography of. And, uh, they, they were like authors, comedians, histor- historical figures. That's what they're interested in. And I, I whittled it down to Rick Mail and Terry Pratchett. They're the other two I, I wanted to do most. And I s- realized that Pratchett was just a no-brainer because there's never been a biography of Terry Pratchett. Um, there's a couple of books about him. They're not really biographies. They're more sort of critical analysis. um um, to varying degrees of kind of academic credentials um but no one had written a proper biography and i thought he's got a fascinating story he's got really i know he's got a fascinating story i know enough about him to know that it begins and ends in really really interesting ways and in the middle he's briefly the biggest selling author in the english language so like that's a good story that no one has told before and also, as an added bonus, he has a massive audience of people hmm. who are primed to buy books. So I'm not saying that I'm a cynical capitalist, but I did think that might give the idea an edge. And then I, and then the next six months of my life were entirely consumed with thinking about, writing about, and often dreaming about Terry Pratchett. And I, I managed to, I did a complete Discworld, no, not just Discworld, I did a complete Pratchett reread, mostly via audiobooks. Um, in the space of less than a year, I did all sixty Pratchett books, <laughs> so um, it was a busy year. And huh. yeah, I it turned out pretty well, well.
0: That was the first thing I was going to ask you: is yeah, like, how did you reread all all sixty Pratchett books? And then it's like, but reading the book, it was like obviously you. Um, it seems like you had gone through everything: all the maps and like calendars and like reviews he had ever written and stuff. Did you like? How did you? Review of so much material, like you said, in less than a year?
1: Well, I I mean, I've got a pretty thorough understanding of the books anyway. And I did the book I did the actual novels as audiobooks. So um I you know, I there's writing writing biographies of beloved authors is a nice side hustle but it doesn't make Hmm. a living i've got an actual job so i would um so i you know i commute every day so what i did then i fortunately the the, my commuting days are, are behind me these days um not because Writing biographies of beloved authors has suddenly become profitable, but just because I'm working from home now. Mm. Uh so you know, I would cycle the 45 minutes to and from work every day. I'd listen to listening to an audiobook. I would do the washing up, listening to the audiobook, and like and uh I churned through them about and actually, because I wrote the book more or less in chronological order. And by like sheer coincidence, like honestly, this is this is complete coincidence. It wasn't timed like this. I finished the audio book of the final Pratchett novel, uh, the shepherd's crown, as I was finishing the book, like it took, like it took that the exact length of time hmm. to listen to all of them as audio as it took hmm. to read the book. Now I, I had read them all before, so it wasn't like I was um, rediscovering thing, discovering anything new. So that was a relatively easy task. Um, the stuff that's less easy is the stuff that's, that's harder to get hold of which is his massive catalogue of work as a journalist. Um, I had a bit of help with that because Terry's agent and original publisher, Colin Smythe, who we met in 1968, um, has a website. Um, Colin's, basically Colin's entire um, kind of job these days. He does still publish books, um, but it's kind of small prints, academic stuff, and he doesn't handle terry's estate stuff day to day rob wilkins does that um, who was terry's assistant um so he's kind of become the archivist of the pratchett estate and he makes it his mission to like document everything he can find and he has on his website a comprehensive list of every single byline that he could find that pratchett has ever had so i had a reasonable idea of which articles appeared in which newspapers at which time and the british library because I'm fortunate enough to live in london has basically got an archive of every single newspaper printed in the uk ever um so i was able to go literally uh, you have to you know you have to apply to join and uh, um, go through a sort of a, a progress a, a a process to get a membership that is so rigorous that i was able to use my british library membership card to get on a plane <laughs> that's how rigorous that is um yeah. that's true uh, so yeah i i basically started at the beginning i knew that he joined the books free press and the the um the local newspaper in buckinghamshire where he grew up in september of 1965 so i i got the entire archive of 1965 of the books free press i know his name wouldn't be in it but i knew for for a few issues i knew his first fictional piece came because he wrote children's stories for it um under a pseudonym was about three weeks three weeks or th- four weeks in so you know I, I read about a year's worth just going through the entire newspaper finding stuff that and that's important not just to find pratchett's writing uh, but also just to put the whole story into context like you can learn a lot about a society by looking at its local newspaper um and then yeah i just went through acres and acres and acres of newspapers
0: and and one of the things like it seems like made it really challenging from the book, too, is that Pratchett had this tendency, it seems, to embellish or misremember uh, a lot of the things, a lot of the anecdotes from his life. So one that kind of sticks out from my mind is that in uh, in 2017, he told this story about how he came up with the uh, orangutan librarian as a kid and imagined that it would be able to climb up the shelves and get the books that were shelved up high. But then you say, if you go back and look at an interview from 1996, he has a much less interesting story where he's like, Oh, I was just, when I was writing the book, it just seems like something weird that a wizard would turn into. And so you had to kind of be a little bit of a, like a sleuth to try to figure out, you know, it's not like you could yeah. just find, take, take any, take everything you said at face value. Yeah,
1: exactly. And yeah, Pratchett is a, he was a storyteller at heart. That was, that was his gift. He's amazing. He was an amazing storyteller and that, you know he could never resist the urge to give his own anecdotes a polish, and it made it made him in a very entertaining interview. He prepared for interviews like rigorously. He would like he's really quotable in interviews because before he went on a press like like a press tour or or started the press for a new book, he would prepare lines that he knew would get that he knew would be great pull quotes because he used to be a journalist so he knew exactly what to say um but yeah he would always give his stories a bit of a polish um the most famous one is probably he often talks about how in his first day as a student trainee journalist he saw a dead body and he repeated that story hundreds of times. Every time he talked about his journalism career, um, and he talked vividly, and, he, and about how much that had disturbed him and how it affected him. And he wrote vividly about dead bodies. There's a scene in one of his books, um, "Only You Can Save Mankind," where a teenage, a, a, one of the teenage characters sees a dead body, and you can—it's so visceral and so upsetting that you know that this this is based on when he saw one as a journalist. But you kind of think on your first day okay that seems but then so but he he described just he described the incident and described how the body had been found he said it was a a, a tramp that had fallen into a into um like a, a, a latrine on a farm and drowned and it, it was horrible so i went through six months worth of the books free press looking for that story couldn't find it like that story wasn't it like and okay maybe Maybe it wasn't printed for whatever reason. Maybe it was outside of his jurisdiction. Maybe it had been spikes. Maybe he misremembered the details. But I couldn't find a story about anybody that matched that. So I don't think he lied about it. I don't think it didn't happen. I'm pretty sure at some point, as a young journalist, he saw a a grotesque dead body that had a great impression on it. But I don't think it happened on his first day. Mm. Uh, I think happening on his first day is a really good story and it makes it much more interesting and you know, he was he was a genius about that he knew how stories worked he had his first story published when he was 14 he'd been writing uh you know he was right he wrote children's stories every single week for like seven eight years for his newspaper and it's uh yeah, you, like he just had a knack for knowing how to tell a story, and why not apply that to your old to your own life? No one's checking until after you you're dead, and somebody <laughs> writes some some chump comes along and writes a book about you. I'm be very very interested to read. There's a new biography of Terry coming out, uh, written by Rob Wilkins, his um his business manager and assistant, and and one of his great friends who was with him right to the end. Um, and that's going to be based partly on Terry's notes and partly on stuff Rob was there to see. And partly on interviews with all the people who I couldn't get because there would be an interview for Rob's book, and I'm going to be very interested to see how my book and his book match up because my, like I my sources were things Terry said in the press, um, were things people, people I people I could interview, and kind of historical context. Um, whereas Rob's sources were Terry Pratchett, so it's going to be very interesting to see to see. Um, not so much what I got right, but where the stories diverge into a different trouser leg of time.
0: Yeah. So I have a, a confession I, I have to make at this point is that I've never actually read any Terry Pratchett, and a lot of people are probably going to be surprised to hear that because I'm actually a big fan of funny fantasy, and you know some of my favorite authors growing up were like Robert Asprin and Craig Shaw Gardner. But the first time that I remember really actually. My first clear memory of a Terry Pratchett book, of just seeing one, is is when I was in college. I worked for the uh, the campus newspaper, and there was just one floating around the office. And, and people said, like, oh, you like fantasy. Do you want to read this? And at the time, I was just too busy with uh, you know, schoolwork and stuff, so I didn't have time to read it. And that was in 1999. And so I was really shocked that in, in your book, you say that in, in 1999, uh, by that point in the UK, uh, 6.5% of all new hardbacks were Terry Pratchett books. So mm-hmm. it's just either there's a I mean, I know there's a difference, but either there's just a gigantic difference between how well known he was in the U.S. and the U.K. at that point. Or I just sort of missed his popularity, sort of burgeoning popularity in the U.S. somehow. So what do it's you think about of that?
1: It's a little of each. Uh, he, I mean, he eventually did become a, a big name. You know, he was a New York Times best selling author, but not until 2005, I think. Not until I think it was um, either Thud or Going Postal um, in the mid two thousands, which is the first time he finally got onto the New York Times bestseller list. Um, before that, he was very much a cult in the US. He was very much a cult writer. Um, you know, he, like if you were into into the you know, fantasy and into like uh, and into sci fi and into the scene, you may have heard of him. You may have seen the books passed around. Um, you know, he had a fan. He had a fandom a big fandom I and he, you know, he'd turn up at world con or, um, other, other big conventions and would do huge speeches and, you know, would be very well, well received. But, um, behind the scenes, there was never, it took him a while to find a, a kind of publishing route that worked, um, to find publishers that believed in it and understood it and knew what it was he was doing. Cause it's a very, very British sense of humor, extremely British. And you just had to get over the idea that you had to be British to get the jokes because Pratchett at that point was huge everywhere, literally everywhere else in the world. Like America was the last stand. The United <laughs> States certainly was the last sort of holdout. And it was mostly because they just had to get, um, get the ducks in a row in terms of the publicity, publicity, like the books had come out in a very haphazard way sort of through different book sort of book clubs and organizations and different publishers, you know, they'd come out in the, the, like they'd come out in the wrong order and they hadn't really been given a proper push. And Pratchett himself said that when he used to go to conventions, mostly he'd be signing the British editions, the UK editions because that come over on import because it was easier to get them on import than it was to find the U S versions. Um, but yeah, held out in the US, despite being literally, for a chunk of the 90s, the um, biggest selling author in the English language for a, for a brief while, before J.K. Rowling came along and yeah. um, absolutely trounced him <laughs> <But> <laughs>
0: could, for a while. Uh... Could could I ask you, because um, you mentioned also, you know, in terms of funny fantasy, you mentioned these authors, Tom Holtz and Robert Rankin, who I'm, mm-hmm. I'm not familiar with at all. And I'm just wondering, like, have you heard of Robert Aspirin and... Uh, Craigshaw Gardner and Piers Anthony would be the ones, you know. And I would have thought of myself as pretty conversant with funny fantasy, but it just seems like there might have been a pretty big divide in that particular subgenre uh, between the US there, and the UK.
1: There might well be. I've heard of Piers Anthony. I hadn't. I, I have to confess, I hadn't heard of the other two. Uh, so you know, that's that. There you go. There's 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 the divide there. And I know. I guess it comes across. Uh, it, it depends on who's publishing them and how and. Um, and how well they're marketed and and yeah, you know, I'm sure that there's cult followings for all of these authors on both sides of the pond, but it's just a matter of whether whether they bob up to the mainstream or not. It you know depends on your channels. I'm sure there are many, many British listeners to this screaming at me for not having this. <laughs> I'm sure there are. But then there are many, many, many of your listeners screaming at you for not having picked up a sorry Pratchett. book oh, until nineteen ninety nine. So all, I'm, it's I'm, just
0: I'm gonna go into hiding once this episode goes <laughs> um but it just it you know sometimes
1: you, you you know you don't know what you don't know do you like if you haven't heard of it you haven't heard of it it's not your fault that you the um that that particular author wasn't presented to you at the right moment for you to pay, for you to pay attention
0: yeah because it, it's pretty random how i came across those authors i mean one of my friends handed me a robert aspirin and i just randomly came across my first craigshaw Gardner in an airport and stuff so uh, it could have just as easily been terry pratchett i guess if uh you know What happened with Pratchett?
1: What happened with Pratchett in the UK is um, because he became such a publishing phenomenon, like a huge publishing phenomenon. Like came out of nowhere. Like it, like the the intelligentsia weren't paying attention. The critics weren't paying attention. This is proper grassroots stuff that became popular, kind of like broadsiding the very much broadsiding the industry. Um, And one of the things that had worked so well is uh, Corky, who published the paperbacks. Had come up with, had found this um, uh, illustrator called Josh Kirby, who illustrated the first basically two decades worth of, of Discworld books and of the covers until he died. And what they'd done is create this very specific visual identity. So the books, they look akin to each other. They had a very specific visual style and they looked great on a shelf together. And that was part of the secret of what, and there was more, so you kind of had this collective mentality, but they, as they became more popular, Comic fantasy itself became popular as a genre, which had never been a popular genre before. Like the reason Pratchett took off is because fantasy was was popular, and he had the idea of doing for fantasy what Douglas Adams did for sci-fi. Like that was that you know that's that's the the elevator the elevator pitch for the first Discworld, not more. And it became hugely successful for a while. It was like this massively popular thing. Um, Not so much anymore, I think. I think it was a bit of a, it was a very specifically mid nineties phenomenon in the UK, comic fantasy. And then what happened after that is he, Terry himself kind of started to finally be seen as, as more than comic, more than, he always proudly was a fantasy writer and proudly was a funny writer, but he was also proud of the fact that his work meant his work was a lot more than that he wasn't just you know that there was more to it and and people finally started to catch on he started to get the big awards and 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 the critical acclaim and and he was kind of raised above that level which i think he was very very pleased about on the one hand but on the other hand he always defended himself as a genre writer and always felt that Actually, um, rather than saying he was more than a fantasy writer, more than a, a comic fantasy writer or a, or a science fiction writer, uh, it was the genre of fantasy, of science fiction itself that was worthy of praise.
0: Yeah. I was going to say, I mean, that I, I was sort of jealous of you reading this book is because, you know, because my favorite books when I was a kid were the Robert Asprin Myth Series and they kind of petered out around the time I was, uh, you know, in high school and he had writer's block and financial problems and all these things. And so, but for you, it was like, I was thinking, it's like for you, the, the Discworld books, you know, that you picked up around the same age just continued to get better and more sophisticated <laughs> for decade yeah, after decade. Do. And yeah, I'm really jealous of that, uh, that experience.
1: And they never stop. Uh, also outside of Discworld, I think that's, that's something that like, ob- with good reason, people talk about Discworld first when they talk about Pratchett, which is, you know, you know, the world sat on the, 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 the fantasy parody world sat on the back of a giant turtle, all that sort of stuff. And that was, you know, that was his his idea that crossed over. And some of his best writing is Discworld. Not all of it, though. Actually, I think some of his very best stuff is the stuff he wrote outside of that series. Um, like there's a book called Nation that I think is, uh, well, which was a sort of a, a YA book he wrote in 2008 that I think is just an incredible, profound, moving piece of work. Um, and so it's easy to kind of dismiss his other work. But, yeah, he never stopped. And the quality never dropped either um like at one point it's it's actually absurd it's genuinely absurd at one point he in nine, I I put this and point this out in the book but in 1990 there were five new Terry Pratchett novels published hmm. five truckers no hang on diggers and wings sequel to truckers good omens the Neil Gaiman um collaboration which is now you know obviously become a very successful tv show um Eric, which was an illustrated Discworld novella and uh Moving Pictures, which is a, a full Discworld novel, like five novels published in one year. That's absurd. That's absolutely absurd. And they're really good. Like particularly the two, uh, the two kids books and um, Diggers and Wings, which are part of the, what was known as the Bromeliad series. Those are, those are amazing. And yeah, you know, good omens is a classic it's like it's absolutely ridiculous and he rarely published less than he rarely published less than two books he published a new novel a year between i think 1986 and 2013 that was a new actual full novel every single year i think 2014 was the first year there wasn't a solo terry pratchett novel and by then of course he was very sick but he still had like two more in the barrel, <laughs> like, ready, ready to well, come down, and like it's it's astonishing.
0: Well, I, I think actually part of my problem getting into Terry Pratchett is the the paradox of choice thing, where mm. you know it's it's such a monumental task to even begin to wrap your mind around which of these books should I read first, and so uh, you know part of the. Um, Part of the reason I wanted to read your book is, like, is I was like, OK, well, if I read this book, this will give me a pretty good idea of <laughs> which ones I might like, which, uh, you know, which Terry Pratchett novels I should uh, I should start with. And actually, the um, the things that actually caught my interest the most were um, I forget, it, it was like the, the Long Earth or something. It was the collaborations with mm. Stephen Baxter that had a little bit more of a hard sci fi uh, parallel yeah. worlds kind of thing. But those were actually the ones that I, you know, sort of appealed to my sensibility the most, I think, at this point.
1: Yeah. I mean, as a, if you, as a sci-fi fan, like they're, they're great. I, uh, they, I, I'm sure they'll be right with street. They're, um, they're okay. The central idea of those books is extremely solid. Uh, the, the, the idea of, of jumping between, being able to jump between parallel worlds and kind of the site, uh, and the effects that that would have, that that discovery would have on humanity and would have on society to suddenly open up literally like infinite amount of, of space and infinite amount of land and resources uh that because the, the parallel worlds are, are all mostly uninhabited um that's really a really really great solid sci-fi concept which he kept under his hat for about 25 years um and Baxter was a great collaborator for them um i don't think they're vintage pratchett i don't think they're the best things he wrote uh, the first one's great um they kind of tail off a little bit in the middle and then they kind of come back around at the end. A lot of people talk about how they're not very prachety, and they'll say that they're, um, you know, that I, don't, I don't hear Terry's voice in these books. And they'll may, maybe say that, you know, they were written towards the end of his life and he, you know, he was under the the, the yoke of his Alzheimer's disease and they'll say, oh, you can see the Alzheimer's in there. That's not his voice. And I think it's a misapprehension. Actually, the reason that they don't read like the Pratchett they know is they're thinking of Discworld Pratchett uh, or the the Pratchett who writes YA books. But these are hard sci-fi. Um, they're kind of a popcorny hard sci-fi. But they're they're you know the 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 science fiction aspect of them. They're, they're, Terry knew his stuff. He was a sci- he was a proper SF nerd. You know he he read everything when he was a kid. He was you know, a proper sci-fi fandom nerd. Um, and those are these are science fiction books, and they have a different tone and a different sensibility. Yeah. Um, Actually, let me just read this. Have-
0: let me just read this quote about that. Uh, there's a part in the book where well, one one person says Terry always wanted to be a writer of hard science fiction, and he used to describe what he did as paddling around in the shallow end while watching writers like Greg Bear and Larry Niven do multiple somersaults off the high board. Mm.
1: Yeah, and that sums it up really well. He did. He was a he science fiction was his way into writing it was his way into uh into the creative world the first stories he wrote were science fiction stories he he actually um but he like he published a story when he was 17 in new worlds which is a um uh like in the 60s there were two british science fiction magazines that came out that came out i think on a monthly basis um science fantasy and new world new World's pro- probably the more respected michael moorcock was editing it by that point and yeah he had a story published in that called um oh i forgot what it's called on the top of my head anyway <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's never been republished since then uh, it's a really kind of creepy um, sort of sp- It's a space adventure, but it's really, there's a sort of space horror. It's got this kind of almost Lovecraftian feel to it. Um, it's kind of a sort of slightly 2001-y about, as- about astronauts on a mission to Saturn stranded on the edge of space, and there's something weird
0: happening. And it's a very unsettling story um and which, is that the one you said it's the only thing he wrote that doesn't have any humor in it in its entire doesn't have career? a
1: single joke
0: it's not yeah. it's the only thing i've ever read by him that doesn't
1: have a single joke in it it has none of his you'd never know it was his it was him and it's really annoying me that i can't know what it was called now <laughs> <laughs> but it was um but that's never been reprinted probably because it doesn't have his voice I, I thought it was a really compelling story actually i was really surprised because i would, i'd heard about it and i was expecting it not to be that great but he was you know he wanted to be a science fiction writer and if you read his two the first two adult novels he wrote in the 70s um dark side of the sun in 74 and strata in uh, i think it was printed in 81 written i think it was finished by 76 you know those deal with really classic sci-fi ideas that come straight out of larry niven you know it's it's founders and um and you know the, I mean, Ringworld is a huge influence on, on them, and like this kind, the idea of shared space, and known space, I mean, all of that kind of classic seventies hard sci-fi stuff is in those two books. Although they're they're kind of a uh, a a more comic, although not completely comic, take on them, and they're good. They're they're good pulpy sci-fi novels, um, which he was j- rightly, justly, very proud of. And when he, you know, when he, when the um when there was demand to reprint his early work. Uh, he was happy for those two books to, co- to to come out unedited. It was only the carpet people he rewrote.
0: Well, just the fact that he came up with the idea for Discworld after watching a a, a lecture that Larry Niven gave about his ring world. I mean, that makes perfect sense, but I, I never knew that. I never uh, made that connection before. Yes, Um
1: the idea for for a Disc World. This is what I think is quite interesting is that the the idea for the Disc World doesn't come from the Larry Niven lecture. The idea for a Disc World comes from the Larry Niven lecture, in that he knew that in that Niven obviously created Ring World very very famously, and the idea of Ring Worlds is, is, you know, is an established one in science fiction, which we saw turning up in Star Wars recently, which I was very pleased about. Or well, that was more of a kind of a more of a, more of a kind of a halo deal but um yeah that was and that gave him the idea for what became his book strata which was like okay what if instead of a ring world a what a planet that is in the shape of a ring orbiting a star we make it a disc world that makes it a flat world okay well where do we go from flat worlds flat world you think flat earth thinking that means backwards thinking so we make it a retrograde society sort of a regressive Medieval society, when you go, when you, when you go down it, down onto the planet. And, uh, but it's an artificially created world as Ringworld is. And so it's, that's a, that's, you know, a classic science fiction trope, the idea of a, of an old society leaving this constructed world. Um, but from, so that's how you get to Strata. Now, during the writing of Strata, he remembers the idea that actually one of the great flat earth theories that um, comes from the Medi from the ancient world was that the the world the world the earth is a disc carried on the back of a turtle sometimes with elephants and sometimes not and that sparked off the next idea and I really liked that it wasn't just a kind of a eureka moment it was a an evolution of things plant that come from all the information planted in his head because he'd read so much because he was so widely read and he'd soaked in so much that um you know it it one idea fired off another. Actually, could could I just
0: mention that I really liked the fact that when he was a kid, he worked at the local library. And at least he claimed that their filing system is they had one drawer for books that he had taken out and one drawer for books that everyone else had taken out yeah which i love and also the fact that you said at least he claimed that
1: uh shows that you're learning <laughs> when, <laughs> when it comes to terry pratchett you cannot take anything he said for granted if it sounds too good to be true often it might be but yeah he was like the 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 plaque outside of his local library says this is what the um where he became an author like terry pratchett the writer was born in beaconsfield library um and yeah, it was his way in. It was a little bit like it happens in Matilda by Ro- the Roald Dahl book when she goes, when she discovers that the library is there and that you're allowed to take out any book you want and suddenly is in hog heaven. And Terry was very much the same. It you know, was very much kind of like jumping into this pool of huge sea of information and just absorbing it and reading everything. And no one telling him that these bo- these books over here, they're for adults. These books over here, they're true things and they have a certain value because of their history or science. And these books over here, these are story books and they have a different value. And he didn't know that. He didn't understand it and he didn't care about it. He just read. And it turned out his reading age was massively proficient. And he would just um and he devoured his way from one end of the library to the other, which I find absolutely brilliant. And that's why you know he was so well read and he never stopped reading. He never stopped reading for pleasure. Um and he particularly never stopped reading um non for pleasure and that leaks in. If you read it, particularly the discord novels, which are the ones where he really lets loose with references, where he really lets that kind of giant vat of information kind of pepper, pepper through the book. The only person who gets every single joke and reference in a discord novel is Terry Pratchett. <laughs> like there are, there are no, there's not another human being on earth who gets every single one because there are, you'll get some because you have seen, certain films or know certain historical concepts or um have read a certain classic fantasy novel but there were others you'll completely miss and there are some a bit like it's a lot like dickens and there are some jokes there that no one will get anymore because they were based on an advert that was on british television hmm. for like six months in 1987 and his you know his great skill as a writer is if you don't get the joke you don't even notice that it's a joke and Actually. that's you know that's the the the, the yeah, the genius of the best comic writing is that if it's, if you don't get the joke, it doesn't matter. You didn't even notice it was there. But if for those that do spot the joke, it's just this
0: extra layer. It's, could I it's, ask? It's, speaking it's, of adverts, could I ask you about this? Because uh, there's a part in the book where it says, the last straw came when an edition of Pyramids published in 1991 <laughs> was found to contain an advert for instant soup halfway through the novel in the actual body of the text. a Furious Pratchett refused to sign another, another contract with that company. I've never heard of anything like that ever in all my years no, of uh covering reviewing books and, and, and interviewing authors it, and everything it's absolutely astonishing isn't it uh yeah that is true um
1: apparently not in, at the time not an unusual practice in um in germany which was where that where that was apparently that wasn't a, it was actually a fairly you know common industry practice i've never heard of it anywhere else in the world but yeah, there was on one page like written. Uh, well, I, I've I've seen it, and it's not. It occasionally gets slightly misrepresented as being like inserted into the narrative, and then like then the character, set, and then the character <laughs> basically turns yeah, to the camera and yeah. says, yeah. "Now I'd like some soup." It's not quite, you know, it's, it is obviously an advert. It's not it's, product it's a, placement. No, it's not. It's not. It's not product placement. It's, it is quite clearly um, an advertisement, but it is. Yeah, in the middle of a novel, just right there on the page, and uh, it's yeah. I mean, Germany, that particular German publisher butchered Pratchett's work. Uh, his the stuff in the in the mid eighties and nineties. It's genuinely funny. Apart from that, I mean, that was that was a particularly bad example but also um they didn't like the cover to mort the fourth discworld novel the, the publishers didn't like it for some reason so um they instead they used the cover for the next book in the series weird sisters has the like now people accuse josh kirby the cover artist of having sometimes only a tangential relationship with the plot of the story but he always gets the essence of the story over um but what but you know Mort is a book about Death's Apprentice. Hmm. And Weird Sisters is a book about is, is a Shakespeare parody about witches. And there are no there are basically no witch. There's a witch, briefly in more like it's very clearly the, the cover of a completely different book. And then they get then, of course, they've got to publish the next book, which is Weird Sisters. So they need a new cover for that. So they just use it again. <laughs> I just you know, so, for, for, so there's two Discord novels in the '90s German production, German productions in the states. Sorry, in in um in Germany that have exactly the same, which is <laughs> completely baffling. But uh, yeah, it that's like that's one of those you can't quite believe that this is true, but genuinely it really is stories.
0: Mm-hmm. I want to, I really want to ask because my favorite chapter in the book was chapter 12, where you talk about Neil Gaiman and Terry Pratchett collaborating on on, on the, no- the novel Good Omens. And I didn't, I never actually realized that was Neil Gaiman's first novel that he had published. Mm. And it was kind of striking to me that so, and I never knew this, that Neil Gaiman met Terry Pratchett by interviewing him for a science fiction magazine, and then they kind of kept in touch afterward. And that Terry Pratchett first got published by somebody that he had initially met by interviewing them. So there was a kind of interesting, um, you know, parallelism to, to both of their careers that way.
1: Yeah. Did I make that point in the book? Cause if I didn't, I'm really annoyed. I missed it.
0: <laughs> that's uh, a really I'm not good... sure if you did.
1: I don't think I've made that connection. That's a really, really good. That's a really good connection that I wish I'd noticed. <laughs> uh, yeah. You're right. You're absolutely right. Yeah. They, the one begat the other. Um, yeah, that, that's, that's fascinating.
0: But so, but it, it, just reading chapter twelve, it felt like you were having a lot of fun writing that. Is that is that mm. the case?
1: Yeah, I did. Um, I did. I because I've always loved good omens, um, and also because the Good Omens TV show was out at that point. um, I was like, I was like, you know what? This is this is permission for me to really explore this one book because this one book has a unique place in the sort of, in the grand canon of Pratchett because it it has, you know, it it is this now this hugely successful TV show with the second season of which is filming at the moment. Um, So yeah, I, I felt like I got to do something a bit more interesting and it, that kind of becomes a pivot point in, I think in, my book because um it was sort of up until that point in the book the the i told the story very chronologically and then i got to, i thought okay at this point i'm going to step out of the chronology and i'll do like it's pretty much the center of the book and i'll do a chapter that's a bit different and i will so it, i got to write a mini uh, like a mini biography of neil gaiman for example and one of the great joys of writing of writing non-fiction of writing biography is that you get to write little mini biographies inside it um, and, you, you know, you go down different rabbit holes and you find different things. And that was really interesting.
0: Well, and- could, could I ask, you, are you a big Neil Gaiman fan? Because it seems like, like he's, he was a journalist and you're a journalist and he was in a punk band and you're in a punk band. Yeah. It seems like there were some similarities there
1: yeah i do i do love Neil. i um i i, I mean I, I wouldn't say i know i know neil gaiman i i know him a little bit he's a friend of a friend i stayed at his house once which i I, I quite enjoyed um he wasn't there but <laughs> i got to be in there um <laughs> but uh, um in upstate new york when i was on tour of my band um but yeah i've always loved Neil's work i think he's and yeah i like like, like yeah he's a man after my own heart i think i think he thinks in a similar way to the way i do which is not quite how Terry thinks. But yeah, I, I find, I, I find something really, I find something really appealing about his writing and about his worldview. Um, and it was really fun to explore that. And the, the, the fun of Good Omens, writing about Good Omens as well, is because it's not just like, how did this book come about and how did it bring in all these different influences? Um, it's all you also get to talk about how two writers influence each other how the process happened and then because good omens has this twisty turny um twisty turny journey through hollywood after the books finished that only really came to fruition in 2018 when the series came out um 2019 or wherever whenever it was you know it um that was really fun to write because I got to to write about the Hollywood machine and Terry Gilliam and, you know, script, the script writing process and that sort of thing. And that's really fascinating. I really enjoyed that
0: sort of thing. Yeah. Well, and Terry Pratchett and Neil Gaiman are both such great characters and they're so different from each other that they kind of make this great dramatic foil uh, to each to the other. Yeah.
1: Yeah, they do. And it is, you're right. It is a, a really interesting juxtaposition because, one is very, like, Neil is very much a kind of, um, Terry is very fastidious. That's how I'd put it. Terry is very fastidious, very driven, very, um, his, his work rate is astonishing. His productivity is amazing. He's got this real kind of, um, drive to write. You know, he wrote every day of his life, like, words like, pages and pages of words every single day he never went a day without writing and he had this work ethic that was what how he got to be so prolific and neil is prolific but he's not as but you know if you look at how many how many novels has neil written 10 11 something like that plus um plus tv and film there's it's a great body of work there's plenty there but it's not two novels a year for for the best part of 20 years (laughs) um and that's because neil has a normal person's work ethic (laughs) um and there's also more of you know he's a he's an edgier person he's more of a late night person he's more like he's he's uh he's basically a lot cooler than terry <laughs> they're both nerds at heart but but neil as as we know neil gaiman is cool like the leather jacket the shades he's cool like the rock star wife like he's a cool person terry is was um, you know, unashamedly a nerd.
0: Unashamedly
1: a geek. Yeah. I, well, he, let me
0: read this. So you, you say in nineteen ninety-seven, SFX readers voted Pratchett the worst dresser in sci-fi. <laughs> yeah. And having been in sci-fi my whole life, that's uh there's some stiff competition for title of worst <laughs> dresser. So exactly
1: um which yeah when you compare to neil gaiman who is you know, who is just a man in black you know that's he dresses like lou reed that's like you're always going to be cool if you dress like lou reed whereas um yeah pratchett i mean he he, he kind of uh fixed it a little bit toward, uh, as his career went on and he also sort of adopted a man in black persona uh, it was all about the hat and the, la- and the black jacket but like you know, there's you see him on an interview in the there's a there's a mid nineties British TV interview and he's wearing kind of a like a like I don't know, kind of like a khaki beige pant shirt combination. And it's you know, it doesn't it looks like he's off on safari, but like but he's bought all his stuff from the second hand store. It's like he wasn't a man blessed with a great deal of style. Hmm. Uh he, he never was. but that's not who he was. Like Terry Pratchett never wanted to be cool. That wasn't, he actually thrived and relished not being cool. Like that wasn't who he was. He liked to be, he liked to play the outsider. He liked to play the nerd. He liked the fact that he, that he was his audience. He was writing for himself because that's what I mean by that. He's the only one who gets all the jokes. He was writing for himself, but he knew that he was, he had been that audience and he knew that his books were written by main, by like a mainstream read by a mainstream crowd. He knew you can't be that successful and only have an audience of nerds, but he also knew that the core audience, the ones that drove the fandom and the fandom is what powered the success. He knew that they were him. Like they were exactly the kind of person that he had been in the 60s when he was going to conventions and, um, and, uh, you know, meeting uh, and getting nervous about meeting Arthur C. Clarke in the toilet and writing letters to sci fi authors. You know, he, he was that person. And that's why he understood fandom so well. It's why he, you know, he was always at conventions. He never stopped going to conventions, even when he couldn't possibly go without being swamped. Like he he knew that world he understood it implicitly, um and that may and that was one of the secrets to his popularity that he he knew how to cultivate and grow an
0: audience. So so what was your experience when the when the book came out your book like what kind of reactions did you get her did you go on a book tour just like what sort of what was that experience Uh, like? Annoyingly, it came out mid COVID, which was
1: which was frustrating. Uh, I because I'd actually like i I rushed to finish this book like i i i didn't scrimp, scrimp on anything except sleep, but I wanted to get it done by um but, so it'd be out by the uh, Discworld convention in the UK in August of 2020. And I, I spoke to my publisher. and go, I'd really like it out because this convention is only every two years. So and like, it seems like such an obvious place to launch the book and to, for me to sell copies myself. And like you know, let's let's try and get it out. And, the, and my publisher was like, okay, if you want to get it out, you know, we had this conversation very early 2020, 20, 2019. Like if you want to get it out for August 2020, you have to have it in by you have to have it in by. A, End of September 2019, the first draft. So I, and that's, and I think I signed the contract in February or March 2019. That is not long to write a biography, (laughs) Um, and I like, you know, my my wife is not a big fan of that book as a result of, um, Uh, (laughs) of the amount of work I put into it, and so so. But we got it in, we got it done, and um i was really looking forward to having a launch party and then we were going to go to the convention i was going to appear at the convention and do like a, a reading and my band was going to play and i was really excited and then uh lockdown happened and everything got cancelled so the book itself came out in the height of lockdown and it came out you know early summer 2020 um so uh, but it was you know i was very pleased with it i because it's a small publisher, not a big, my, my, my publishers are great, but they're, they're, they're not a huge name. So I kind of realized that I knew how to sell this book probably better than anybody else would in that I knew fandom, I knew Discworld fandom. So I, um, I kind of was like, okay, I'm going to, what would I want to do if I was buying, buying this? So I, I put together special editions. I just bought a bunch of copies wholesale from my publisher um and i put together different editions i wrote like a, a bonus features booklet of the un, of the unedited interviews that i'd done and some essays that i wrote about the process and uh, i put like box sets together and things of different tiers uh, i mean it's, it's tricks i've learned from being in a band really of how to sell stuff to your fan base and i was really pleased with, with it that was a good selection i put them on sale i advertised them on forums and stuff like that and um the hundred that I'd um, pre-ordered sold out in, a, in like two or three days. <laughs> and I ended up doing, I think 500 pre-sales from just from me, not from Amazon or bookshops or anything like that on direct from my publisher, but just through me, uh, which was brilliant but I hadn't quite anticipated what having 500 copies of a book in your house would be like,
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: so, like they, t- they turned up on a truck and the truck driver seemed very confused that he was in, that he was delivering to uh, what turned out to be a regi- a residential apartment in Northeast London and not a warehouse. <laughs> um, so yeah, I like for a while we, we lived amongst cardboard um, and getting them all mailed out was a, was an industrial operation, but yeah, um, oh, yeah, it was. But I was so excited. I I just got excited. I was like, "Well, people want it, so I'm going to order some more." And then I realized I had to sign 500 books. Um, like so, yeah. You know, we we'd put on a Zoom call or something because it was lockdown. We weren't going out anywhere, so we're having. I remember having a Zoom call with some of our friends, and I was. Just, we were all having. We were all drinking, and I was just signing books whilst we were on on the call on a Friday night, like <laughs> having our kind of weekly online pub. What a weird time!
0: <laughs> well, one, um, one of the one of the details. I mean, signing five hundred books—that was just like a night, like one night for Terry Pratchett, right? There's this, oh, yeah. There's this thing about he would like put his hand on ice every mm. once in a while during signings because you know he was signing so many books for so many hours and stuff. That that detail really stuck out. Stuck stuck. Yeah,
1: me. because he, he 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 always insists on writing for everyone, on signing for everyone. If you went to a, if we went to a signing went to do a signing. Like You wouldn't get the three, there'd be three hours where he was doing the signing, but the queue, there'd still be like another 90 people at the queue and he'd insist on staying until he'd done everybody and he would sign everything that they bought and people would bring like, like two carrier bags full of books and they'd want their entire collection signed and he'd <laughs> kind of be withering at them and say something sarcastic. But he would, there's a great quote where he, where he looks at somebody and just goes, do you know what a sad person is? <laughs> um, but then he would sign them all. He would actually do it.
0: But did, did that give you more uh, even more appreciation for him? That you're like, wow, oh, I'm yeah. signing five hundred books like over like however long a week or something, and he was doing it in one night.
1: Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And I, I mean, I I wanted to write funny stuff in them. I wanted to write create. I I, I wrote little creative jokes and poems, and you know, I wanted to really and I, I loved it on when I'd see it on Facebook and people would post the the signature page of the book, um, and uh, it, people loved really liked that that I did that, but. Um God it gets <laughs> it gets trying when you're like I need to think of more i like like I had like six or seven different things that was rotating, but uh as I got that like as I'd get more drunk across the night, they'd get weirder and weirder until like um. Um, there was one where I wrote, I was going to re- just draw a picture of a penis on this, but I thought better of it in the end. And then on the next page, I drew a picture of a penis. And then the next page, I wrote, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> and thankfully that went to somebody who appreciated it because they messaged me, but it could easily have gone to somebody who wouldn't have appreciated it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah. But anyway, yeah, the book came out and um, to my absolute delight, because I'd never written a book before. <laughs> um, and because it was a story I really cared about, uh, it has been really well received and, you know, it got great reviews. It won an award, which i never, the, Lo- the Locust award it won, right? Yeah. Which I never imagined happening. Like I never had thought it would be even that um, you know, someone like Locust magazine would even have picked it up, but yeah, <laughs> it wouldn't, it wouldn't, it, it won the Locust, the Locust award, which I was really pleased with. The Pratchett estate didn't sue me, which I was delighted about. Um, which genuinely i was worried about that (laughs) because when i we wrote to them to tell them i was writing the book and um i got a very very scary letter from from their lawyers basically just saying we'd rather you didn't do this but if you insist on doing it we really want to see it and i was like okay like um and they luckily like they 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 came back and actually they had some really good notes i was like oh thanks it wasn't kind of there were a couple of like we don't like this you're gonna have to change it and instead of changing them i was like okay what i need to do here is prove my point and write it in a way that's unarguable rather than and well referenced and well sourced i'm not just gonna back down and change it and take that bit out i'm gonna make it so it's bulletproof and that made the book better and there are a few other points that were just really good like kind of like like uh actually what happened here was this and it was something that i couldn't have known about otherwise <laughs> and i was like ah okay good thank you so actually i think once they read the book they were um yeah they were much 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 more accommodating and they obviously realized it had been written with love and it wasn't a hatchet job but it wasn't a rip-off and i wasn't trying to squeeze money out of anybody and i wasn't claiming that you know any any out anything outlandish about the end of his life or anything like that i'd written a very sincere um book written with a lot of heart and a lot of jokes
0: <laughs> well, I, I, was- I guess that they, they have their official one in the works and so they were maybe a hmm. little bit more uh i don't know uh aggressive about that than they would have been just
1: ordinarily yeah. And it's totally understandable. I mean, who am I? I'm nobody like that. I, I've, I've now got, i now I'm, I'm fortunate enough to be in the point where I'm an award-winning book yeah. <laughs> and, uh, but I, but because of that book, but then I wasn't, I like, I, you know, I've written some pieces for newspapers and, and, you know, I'd done a bit of stand up, but nothing that would actually qualify me in the eyes of an, in the eyes of, of an expert to write a book about a beloved author um you know i was it was a small small publisher taking a chance on me and an idea that i had and because no one had done it before it was able it it got a lot more attention than i think it otherwise would have done and luckily apparently i was good enough to be worthy of that but i could easily have not been and i don't blame them for being wary of it because i could have been somebody I, i could have done a hatchet job i could have done a really lazy job you know, I could have just stitched together all the known facts. I like I think when they realized how deeply into the research I'd gotten and how much of an appreciation of the work I had. Um and like how much my sort of, you know, I was part of that of their audience. You know, I in the same way that Terry was part of his own audience, he understood it, I was also part of that audience. You know, I I w I was in that same world. I was that sort of person. Um which is I think they've, after that, and I've had a few conversations with Rob who run, runs the, the Pratchett estate and you know, he's, he's done me a few favors and I interviewed him for a piece. I wrote uh, about uh, a new Pratchett cartoon that was on over Christmas. And um, you know, they, they clearly were fine with it because, and I actually really hope what I'm really hoping is that when Rob's comes out later this year, um, mine would almost act as a reference to it. That the two books would work together because I think, mine will mine i've been very i was very specific about the work and about the context of the of the of the books and i think if you're writing the official biography you will probably aren't going to go into the creation of uh, which books came out when and why and that kind of really nerdy detail and i like the idea that the two books will actually complement each other and that mine will be a really nice kind of appendix to the official story particularly if we look if um if it Spins some of the Pratchettian yarns that I found, so I'm hoping that yeah. um, well, rather than disproving or making mine redundant, it will actually mm-hmm. work together.
0: I mean, I thought the book was terrific, and obviously, as someone who never has read any Terry Pratchett, I'm not uh, in any position to say uh, you know to contradict it or you know whatever. But uh, I, I enjoyed reading it a lot, and I think you know, Thank just speaking right. as someone, you know, if you're not um, if you're not that familiar with Terry Pratchett, I think it's a, an amazing introduction to. To him and it's you know it was really fun to read it was funny and you know it, it pulled me right through it and um so yeah it'll it'll and yeah i'll be curious to see uh the one that comes out later this year the rob wilkins one how that's different but but this one i i had a great time reading this so uh you know i could certainly i i, certainly, I would certainly endorse it <laughs> for for what that's worth thank you so much it was really important to me that it'd be funny i was i
1: really wanted because i was like i i you know i write comedy i i i i default to funny i i I, sometimes to my detriment and and i really felt like you couldn't write there was a book i'd read about about terry it was the closest thing anyone had written to to a biography it wasn't really one i won't name it because that seems like a bit uh, like a bit of a low blow but it's more of a kind of um of an analysis of, of his work with a bit of biography thrown in and it was so dry and so kind of ponderous and kind of and um and I'm not talking about the academic one, by the way, which is Terry Pratchett guilty of literature, which is, which is academia and reads a search and that's fine. And that's very good. It's a different one. Um, But it yeah, it just felt, I felt like you can't write about this author in this kind of way. He's so, he's so lively. Um, And that you need to bring that life to the story. Otherwise you're not really doing him justice. And I was really so I'm really glad you found it funny because I, I I wanted it to be funny. I wanted it to have, you know, a, a, it's not so much that I was, I, I was trying to rip off Terry Pratchett's sense of humor or anything. It was more that I've always had a sense of humor that chimes with Pratchett's. Like the reason I loved his work so much is that it's exactly my, my taste of humor, uh, the kind of stuff I've always loved. And I guess that kind of got reinforced by reading more Pratchett. <laughs> um, but like, it's, you know i i felt it was it was a privilege to be able to put all that in and to have a publisher who actually trusted me to do that um like they when i got the first draft back they'd put all the all the footnotes at the back at the end of each chapter it's like no 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 (laughs) no the footnotes have to be on the page it's really important uh and yeah i'm my editor kept a lot more of the jokes than i thought she would
0: Yeah. All right. Well, I think that's a really good note to end on. So, Mark, do you have any just uh, any other final thoughts or any other projects you want to let people know about?
1: Uh, I mean, I I imagine if you're a fan of Terry Pratchett and you're a fan of this podcast, you probably would like my band. I'm in a band called The Men. That will not be blamed for nothing. We are a Victorian themed punk band. Don't call it steampunk. you can call it steampunk we've played a lot of steampunk conventions but we've kind of backed away slowly from that term over the years but yeah with the men that will not be blamed for nothing that's my band Uh, you you may well you can find us on all the usual places um i've got a new book coming out at the end of the year uh this one is not about a fantasy or science fiction author so i although there is a connection um it's about david bowie and mark bolan and their um and their journey through the 1960s not the famous bit of their careers where they were genre-defining era-defining rock stars but the their journey to that point and how britain and um, it's about the britain and london in the 1960s it's called the london boys that's out in october uh, i've just delivered it um and uh basically though so it's another book about somebody who was born just after the war and created fantasy worlds in their head and communicated to them so actually there is a bit of a crossover in uh, yeah i was gonna david say bowie i bet there's Joe a lot Pratchett. of
0: david, david bowie fans listening to this right now so
1: so yeah i'm really i'm very excited about that i'm very pleased about it um we'll see if i can <laughs> we'll see if the if the pratrick book was a fluke or not and then <laughs> but um uh yeah so that's that's it but yeah follow me on twitter that's probably you're interested in that sort of thing i'm at 20th century mark t- two zero th century m-a-r-c um yeah, that's, that's where you can find me.
0: All right, great. So we've been speaking with Mark Burroughs about his book, The Magic of Terry Pratchett. So Mark, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. And that was our interview. So big thanks again to Mark Burroughs for joining us on the show. And remember that Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoyed the show and wanted to continue, please support us on Patreon over at patreon.com geeks or via PayPal over at geeksguideshow.com slash crowdfunding. All right, so that was our show. So thanks, everyone, for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Geeks Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your host, visit davidbarrkirtley.com. Music and voiceover produced by yours truly, Jack and Cade. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.